ahead and take a Bible and turn with me to the letter of James, chapter 3. Verses 1 to 12 today is the longest discussion in the New Testament on uh, the use of the tongue. So let's read it together first in full and then we'll pray together. James chapter 3, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Father, these are sobering words because we use our tongues so often. And I pray that through the next half hour or so that we would hear from you, from your word, that your word would bring new life into our hearts that it would bring renewal then to our tongues, that all that we do in word would bring honor to you and love to our fellow man. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if there's one thing we do a whole lot of, it's talk. It's part of being human. We communicate using words. God created us this way. He created us unique among His creatures, made in His own image. And just like God communicates to us using words to reveal Himself and His purposes for the world, so we communicate using words. Talk fills our days. We, we get up in the morning and we talk to ourselves 
planning out the day. We might turn on the news or check email and people are talking to us about what's going on. We talk to our employer and fellow employees. We talk to our spouse. If married, we, we talk to our children. We talk to our friends. We talk to buy food, to buy clothes. We talk about problems and family and art and literature and politics and recreation and woodworking. We talk through song and social media. Our lives are full of words, full of the use of our tongue. But James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, observes a huge problem. The tongue that God gave his image bearers to reflect his glory and accomplish his purposes for the world, image bearers are using that same tongue instead to cause serious damage. The tongue, when ruled by the sinful heart, is a reckless evil. It wreaks havoc in God's created order, and James addresses this evil. But the way he frames it within his letter will give us great hope that our tongues, indeed our entire person, can find redemption through God's gracious work in Jesus Christ. But first things first, James holds out for us the perfect Christ-likeness in word is the perfect. He begins somewhat abruptly with a word of caution for those aspiring to be teachers. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And why is this so? He tells us in verse, uh, the first part of verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. What's the logic here? It's not that some stumble and others don't. And the ones who don't stumble, they get to be the teachers. No way. I'm all too familiar with my own sin every week. Even the Apostle James includes himself in the picture. He says, we, he's included, we all stumble in many ways. The point is that even the most mature Christian still stumbles in many ways, and we will give an account for all of it at the judgment. That's especially true for teachers whose primary ministry is carried out with the use of their tongue. Their words have incredible influence on the church for good or bad. That should produce some level of soberness when considering the role of a teacher. That's not to say that those the Spirit gifts to be a teacher uh, shouldn't aspire to do it, shouldn't pursue it. Paul says it's a good thing to pursue it. It's only to say that such a pursuit be characterized with a certain humility about it. They will humbly recognize the pervasiveness of sin in their own lives and the reality of being held accountable for it. If there's haste to become a teacher, it's likely a sign that such humility is lacking in that individual. James will go on to ask the church in verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? 
by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. His concern is humility in the church, and especially in the teachers. If the humility is not present in the teachers, it will not be present in the church. But what does this have to do with where he's going with the tongue? Why kick it off with the humility of teachers? Because they're the ones the church must imitate. And insofar as they imitate Jesus, it will be to the church's benefit. But insofar as they do not, it will be to the church's detriment. And that's certainly true when it comes to the way they use their tongues. In the rest of verse 2, James then points the teachers as well as the whole congregation to the perfect. He says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, or literally, in word. It doesn't have to be vocalized. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. We've seen him use this word perfect before. It's the goal of being steadfast through trial in chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 17 speaks of God's perfect gifts. Chapter 1, verse 25 speaks of God's perfect law. His point is that the man who doesn't stumble in word is able to reflect God's character more clearly. It's here that we observe James's goal in addressing the use of our tongues. His goal isn't a mere beating. His goal is to make us more like Jesus in word so that others know God's character more truly through us and the way we use our mouths and our words. Jesus Christ is the only man who is perfect in word. He's the very embodiment of God's Word. We call Him the incarnate Word. And James is is pressing us onward as a church toward maturity in Christ-like speech that reflects God's character. You know, sometimes Christians will brush aside the perfect, uh, the pursuit. They will brush aside the pursuit of the perfect because, you know, after all, we're we're never going to be that way in this life. But while perfection is certainly held out as the way we will live in the end, it also refers to the consistent Christ-like behavior we should want to practice in the present. We should want to be like Christ in the use of our tongue. How much do your words reflect God's character? What impression does your speech leave on the people you interact with from day to day? And is it the impression of one who belongs to Jesus? If James read your Facebook comments, how mature in Christ would he find you? 
Children, when you whine or throw fits at your parents' instructions, what is it saying about your soul? You see, our speech tells the truth about the state of our soul. It's a bit of a tattletale on what's going on inside. Jesus said that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Wherever we cannot bridle our tongue, there we will find spiritual immaturity. So when I walk in my room late at night after tucking my daughter in bed for the eighth time in a half an hour and mumble to myself, Ridiculous! My tongue just exposed my immaturity in Christ-like patience. When I'm quick to just vomit my opinion on everybody without giving due consideration to God's Word, my tongue exposes my immaturity in Christ-like submission to God's revealed will. And when I remain silent in times that love would demand that I speak, even then my tongue's silence evidences immaturity in Christ-like love and boldness. Spiritual maturity is measured by the way we use our words, according to James. Are we growing and maturing toward the perfect? toward Jesus Christ in word. It's not simply enough to hold out the perfect. James also humbles us with the problem. The problem. The problem is that our tongue is rather destructive when it's ruled by sin. You see, the further away we are from the perfect, the more damage it causes In verses 3 and 4, we run into a couple of illustrations that show the disproportionate power of the tongue. He compares the tongue to, to a bit in a horse's mouth that the rider uses to steer the, the horse. I remember being fascinated by this as a, my parents took me on a trail ride, little eight-year-old on this massive beast, just a little move of the rein and directing this, this horse. He also mentions a a rudder on on the stern of a a ship. Just a small piece of equipment in in comparison to, uh, in proportion to the rest of the massive vessel, but it directs the ship wherever the pilot wills. James then explains his point in verse 5, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. shouldn't necessarily read anything negative just yet in the James use of the word boast. Sometimes uh, not all boasting is evil in itself. It depends on what we're boasting in. And here his point is, is more neutral. It boasts of great things, meaning it can, it can do a lot, it can accomplish a lot, even though it's small. The tongue, when he uses the tongue, it represents all we do in word. It's a metonymy, a metaphor for all that we do in word. 
talk is so familiar to us, it comes so easily, that oftentimes we haven't given proper consideration to its powerful influence for good or evil, for life or death. Our tongue is all of 60 to 70 grams of skeletal muscle, and yet it boasts of this great power to direct life. Of course, we know from chapter 1, verse 26, that the tongue is ultimately tied to the heart, the, the, the core of our personhood. And also, even in these illustrations, you know, they include a rider steering the horse and the pilot steering the ship. So even the illustrations are connecting the, the means of control to the guiding desires. And James is now applying that to the tongue. Our heart's desires... They guide our tongue, which then has massive impact on everything else for good or bad. So when the tongue is constrained by gracious desires flowing from a love of God's glory and the gospel, our lives will move in the course that God has set out for us. And so, for example, the woman in Proverbs 31 Verse 26, it says that she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. That's a heart arrested by the the glory of God. And her mouth speaks this way. And, And when the tongue is controlled by our sinful nature, though, When we've lost sight of the perfect, our lives will rebel against the course that God set out for us. And and where there's rebellion in word, then devastation occurs. And that's where James is taking us after showing us the disproportionate power of our tongue. The tongue can be powerful to accomplish very good things, but when it's ruled by sin, it devastates our humanity. He says in verse 5, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the world of unrighteousness. How many times do we hear reports of a small campfire or a smoldering cigarette setting on fire acres and acres of property? The tongue may be small, but when it's ruled by sin, it becomes a destructive Fire. James even calls it the world of unrighteousness. Not just a world, but the world of unrighteousness. Apart from grace, the tongue rambles with the system of evil and rebellion against God. It's morally destitute. Have you ever had a doctor tell you to stick out your tongue? Say ah. They can tell a great deal about your physical state by looking at your tongue. The same here in terms of our spiritual state. Only when God looks at our tongues, He finds the world of unrighteousness. And when the tongue proves to be the world of unrighteousness, it has devastating consequences. Verse 6 says that it defiles us. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. Do you remember what he said back in chapter 1, verse 27? To keep yourself unstained from the world. 
We're not to participate in, its, in the world's moral rebellion, but here the world's moral rebellion is found on our tongues and it leaves a stain on us. And it's a stain we can't wash out. And it's, it's a stain that we cannot hide from God. It just proves us guilty again and again. James sounds a lot like Jesus. Matthew fifteen eleven. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It is what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. He also says that it destroys life. It, it, it sets on fire the entire course of life. You've heard the expression, maybe referring to a rumor or, or to gossip, that it's, it's spread like wildfire. James is, is, makes a similar point about the tongue's potential for spreading evil. He, we've been hearing of wildfires consuming land in, in California. James is, in, in, back in their, in their day, James is basically taking a picture, an image like that, and using it as, and saying, that's what's in your mouth. It's what your mouth looks like. He turns fires into a, a picture of our tongue's capabilities the further they are from Christ. We even see this in Scripture. What happens after Adam and Eve fall into sin? God comes to them. The woman made me do it. The woman you gave me made me do it. Sin spreads like wildfire. What's she do? The serpent made me do it. We see it with Israel as a whole. The, you know, the, the false prophets lying about God's will. And what are the people doing? They're just following suit. It's just spreading, evil spreading through word. And we see it in our own lives. When a harsh word to your spouse shatters trust. Or when an overbearing tone crushes your child's spirit. Or when an impatient shout damages a friendship. Or when a clever joke makes people laugh at evil. Or when a revengeful remark ruins your gospel witness. It affects everything in our lives. It sets on fire the entire course of life. Such a tongue is also set on fire by hell, he says. I don't take that to mean that the tongue is satanic, which is a pretty common interpretation. I, uh, I think that point is simply made plenty clear in verse 8 when he says the tongue is full of deadly poison. That is, it's characteristic of our fork-tongued enemy, the serpent of old. Paul picks up this similar kind of imagery. The poison of asps is upon their tongues to talk about everybody in the world who's under at, in Adam. Yeah, it's satanic. It's just not the point he's making here. The point he's making here with being set on fire by hell is that the tongue deserves punishment. The tongue deserves punishment in hell, just like the serpent of old. It's Gehenna, the same metaphor that Jesus uses to speak of the destiny of the wicked. The place of eternal conscious torment prepared by God for His enemies. So the solution 
It's just to get our acts together, right? I mean, we know the perfect. We see the problem is pretty bad. Let's just stop using our tongues that way. That's all there is to it, right? Dead wrong. James says next that the tongue defies human restraint. The tongue defines human restraint. Verse 7, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. Parents, you take your kids to the circus and they see these... And they ask, what are we going to the circus for? We're going to talk about your tongue. Those animals are tamed. We can't tame the tongue on our own. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. He depicts the tongue as a restless beast. And its restlessness is made evident in that it blesses God on the one hand and curses people made in God's image on the other. So it's got a double-mindedness about it. And it's the double-mindedness that James has been talking about and addressing all along in his letter. You know, people, we've talked about this, people pretending to have one foot in the kingdom and one foot out of the kingdom. People who say they have faith, but they don't have any works. And now we see people who sing on Sunday and drive away grumbling about a brother or sister, belittling them, making assumptions about them that are false. Countless times I remember in seminary being part of conversations where vibrant discussions in theology that are moving people to get excited about God quickly turned into demeaning attacks on other brothers for whom Christ died. The tongue has this restless, wavering, back and forth nature about it. And no human being can bring it under control. That's how bad the problem is. So the perfect Christ is there in all of His glory. And now we see how far short we fall. Our tongue stains us guilty. It deserves eternal damnation. And even worse, we cannot do anything about it. What then is our only hope? Our only hope is God's provision. Is God's provision. God's grace coming to our rescue. God's grace comes to our rescue in sending His own Son, Jesus Christ. We needed a perfect human substitute who could take away all of our sins, even our sins in word. And God sent His Son to become that perfect human substitute. If you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, just one, probably one page in your Bible to the Left, just turn to the left, and uh, you'll find First Peter, chapter two. And I want you to listen to 
1 Peter 2, verses 22 to 24, in light of what we've been discussing about our tongue, and I want you to pay attention particularly to Jesus' use of his tongue. I'll start in verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you have been healed." Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He did not revile in return. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself. Everywhere that we've rebelled against God with our tongue, Jesus proved faithful with his tongue. Even in the moment when we had every right, when he had every right to threaten great judgment on his enemies. He was innocent going to the cross. Even when he had every right to threaten great judgment, he remained quiet to atone for all of the ways that we have abused our tongue. He was silent like a lamb going to its slaughter for all of the words we have used to slaughter others. And so by his death alone, Our guilty stains are washed away. Those stains that the tongue leaves, this world of unrighteous leaves, that we can't get out or hide, Jesus washes them all away. By his death alone, the, the punishment we deserved in hell, it was spent on him in our place. And by his death alone, we're also freed, it says, to, to live to righteousness, even righteousness with our tongues. You see, before Jesus is our perfect example, inward, he's our perfect substitute for our words. But if we're going to experience all of Jesus' saving benefits, you know, we have to be united to him. We actually have to, to live to righteousness with our... I mean, in order to live to righteousness with our tongue, God's grace must unite us him. God's grace must produce in us a faith union with Jesus. And His grace does this by coming to our rescue and giving us a new heart. A new heart. Sometimes we call this the new birth. Regeneration. And I believe James is hinting at it in verses 10 to 12. You see, he is utterly shocked by this double-minded use of the tongue. He is utterly shocked by the inconsistency of the way God's new people are using their tongues. He says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. 
Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What's he getting at? He's getting down to the source of the tongue's problem, namely the heart. A salt pond can't yield fresh water. A fig tree can't bear olives. A grapevine can't produce figs. Why? Because it's contrary to their nature. And in the same way, using our tongues for evil is contrary to our new nature that God has given to us in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 18. I've been taking you back there almost every week because it is driving everything that James is saying in his letter. Chapter 1, verse 18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. How does somebody tame the tongue? God must give us a new heart, a new nature. He must create a new humanity. And he does this through regeneration, the, the new birth. When he unites us to Jesus by faith, He puts His DNA in us by bringing us into union with Christ. He he summons us to life from the dead. And when He does, He starts a work inside that enables change in the whole person. That enables us to bring our tongue into into humble submission to His Lordship. That enables us to take every thought captive for Christ's sake. That enables us to speak the truth in love and to edify our brothers and sisters with gracious words that are fitting for the occasion and sensitive, and even to preach the good news to those who have never heard. In other words, God's grace enables us to use our tongue as His image bearers, now freed in Christ. And so James is coming in and saying, come on, guys, this is contrary to who you are. So where does that leave us today after seeing how much of a restless evil our tongue truly is? Well, it leaves us in a place of hope, doesn't it? A place of hope for change. If God has forgiven us through the cross and then freed us to live to righteousness and given us a new heart, it gives us hope that we can change the way we use our tongues and compels us into that change. So perhaps it'd be helpful to close with just a few ways we can move toward the perfect day by day in the use of our tongue. If you want another P word, let's call this the process. Ways we can move toward the perfect day by day. First, confess where you fall short of the perfect. Confess where you fall short of the perfect. One of my favorite scenes in Scripture is the vision of God's glory in Isaiah 6 where he... It's in the year of King Uzziah's death, he sees the Lord of hosts high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. He sees the seraphim above him and each having six wings. With two, he covers his face. And with two, he covers his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cries out to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The Lord pulls back the curtains of heaven and gives Isaiah this vision of glory. 
and splendor. But the effect of seeing God's glory on Isaiah is very much the same effect that James 3 ought to have on us. He says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the perfect. See, only when we see the perfect as He truly is will we see our sin for what it truly is. And only when we see the perfect as He truly is and our sin for what it truly is will we see how much we need God's saving grace. If the tongue is the barometer of our spiritual maturity, where does that leave you this morning? Perhaps, perhaps you've, you, it's left you in a very desperate place. It has me. How do, you spend, how do you spend all week in a text on the tongue and get up here and say anything? When we see the depth of our depravity, let us humble ourselves before the Lord and confess our desperate need for His grace. James 4, 6 says that God opposes the proud but He gives grace to the humble. So confess where you fall short. Second, ask God for wisdom. James 1.5 If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. As we've already seen, the tongue is impossible to tame by human means. It's a restless evil apart from grace, so let's ask God for assistance, for help, for transformation, weekly, daily, hourly. You know, while you're walking your daughter back to her bed for the eighth time in the half hour, you're praying. Ask God for wisdom. Third, remember who you are in Christ. James' letter begins with a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that in Christ you're no longer a slave to your own passions. Romans 6 teaches us to, this as well. You, you, you belong to God now. You're purchased and owned by Christ. And guess what? When He purchased you with His own blood, your tongue came with it. He got the whole package when He bought you. So give it to Him daily. He is a new master. Pray in the morning that He would become master over every use of your tongue. Fourth, get to know your Heavenly Father's character. Get to know your Heavenly Father's character. James 1.18 says that, it is, that, that, that He is the one that caused us to be born again. And it's through the new birth that He enables us to reflect His character in compassion, holy, holy living, and even our speech ethics. Jesus also said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Why are they going to be called sons of God? Why are peacemakers going to be called sons of God? Because they reflect the character of their Heavenly Father, who is a peacemaker. Many of us have run into people whose accent is quite different from our own. 
We might even ask them, where are you from anyway? Is the speech of our Heavenly Father so prevalent in our lives that people ask us that? Where are you from anyway? Who do you belong to? Would people know by the way you speak at work and by what you write in emails and on the internet that you belong to a new creation? We won't really know how to speak unless we know God, unless we know what He's like and so love what He's like that we can't help but pass it along to others in our daily talk. So open your Bible often and get to know your Heavenly Father's character. Make the most of this Sunday morning setting where we're hearing the Word in Discipleship Hour and hearing the Word now. Make the most of it and make His holy and loving character your meditation all week long. Fifth, be slow to speak. Be slow to speak. We talked about this a few weeks ago. James 1.19 Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Proverbs 10.19 also says that when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. One way to pursue conformity to Christ in word is by slowing down this little mechanism, this this urge to have to say something in retaliation. Isaiah 53, 7 talks about Jesus this way, that, that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he opened not his mouth. And that was to secure our salvation. You see, he knew when to speak, and he knew when to be silent in order to win others to God. Consider God's will and God's word first that it may transform how you speak in every situation. So be slow to speak. Six, speak only to build up your neighbor in love. We saw in James chapter 2, verse 8, that if if you really fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Uh, In the church that James is addressing... We'll get to some of these in the weeks ahead, but, you know, some people are, we saw, that they're, all, they're speaking harshly to the poor. Uh, some are fighting and quarreling. Some are speaking evil against each other. Some are grumbling about each other. The reason James is addressing this issue is because he wants them to be a community where God's love is evident both in deeds and in words. Jonathan Edwards once put it this way. He has this list of resolutions that he wrote for himself. 
You can find them online. Just type in resolutions of Jonathan Edwards and it's a good read. But one of the ones that he wrote in terms of relating to other people was this. Resolved never to say anything at all against anybody but when it is perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and of love to mankind, agreeable to the lowest humility and sense of my own faults and failings, and agreeable to the golden rule. He's just got James in mind. What would it look like when that... We have all kinds of internet filters out there. What would it look like to have that filter right here in all that we... all the ways we use our tongue? Seventh, stay mindful of final judgment. Stay mindful of final judgment. James... James began his discussion on the tongue with a sobering reality of judgment. Then he spoke of hell in verse 6. And he's really echoing the heart of Jesus here when Jesus talks about the tongue in Matthew 12. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Every careless word they speak. So let the judgment of Christ restrain your lips from speaking evil. And finally... Sing often of glory. That's where we're heading, right? We're the first fruits of His new creatures, right? James 1.18, just the first fruits. More of this new creation glory is coming. Sing often of glory. James says that, that already God has made us the first fruits and His grace is powerful and sufficient to fit us for that new creation glory. 1 John 3, 2 also says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. So if you belong to Jesus Christ, by faith, by trusting in Him, God will make your tongue to be fully like Jesus' tongue when you see Him face to face. When you see Him face to face, the Bible says, you will be like Him. All of His children will be like Him. Never again will we use our tongue for evil. With every utterance, our words will spread the glory of Christ and build up our brothers and sisters in Christ. Every thought and every desire will produce syllables and communication that only produce love. And that only increase the other person's ability to enjoy more of Christ's glory and more of Christ's glory and more. Every day it will increase because of the way Jesus will transform us. 
and God will then be all in all. I'd say that day couldn't come soon enough. But until then, let's pray that He would make us more and more like the perfect.